brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters, strap yourself in for another ride through this strange and mysterious world. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And over the years, we've talked about everything from celestial holograms and the Saturn moon matrix to the history of false flags and dark experimentation on unsuspecting people. And clearly, some of these topics are more serious than others, though many of them do require a healthy dose of speculation. What do the aliens and spirits really want? How does Bigfoot get back to the inner Earth so quickly? And can I really think myself to a dream reality? And while speculation isn't off the table entirely today, we are going to focus in on a specific event that no doubt happened, we just don't yet know who pulled it off. I'm talking about the intriguing case of D.B. Cooper, the mysterious man who pulled off the only unsolved skyjacking in aviation history on the day before Thanksgiving in 1971. For those who are unfamiliar, after handing a stewardess a note that he had a bomb and of course drinking a little drink and smoking a little smoke, Many things transpired, but his demands for 200000 in ransom were granted, and he parachuted from the plane to an uncertain fate. He's been called an anti-James Bond, a gentleman thief, and a legendary pirate of the skies, but what he hasn't been called is his real name, because despite an extensive manhunt and the best efforts of the FBI, D.B. Cooper remains unidentified. Well, today, just before the big event known as CooperCon in Portland on the weekend of November 22nd, we're joined by one of the leading authorities on the D.B. Cooper case, Darren Schaefer, the host of the seriously great podcast, The Cooper Vortex, where each episode he interviews a witness or researcher who thinks they've solved the mystery and lets them make their best case without much resistance or interruption, an approach to podcasting that I can certainly appreciate. So without further ado, the Cooper Caper caster himself, Darren, welcome to the higher side. Thanks for having me on, Greg. I appreciate that. It's a hell of an introduction. (laughs) Thanks, man. I try. And I appreciate you being here. I think this is going to be really interesting. Sometimes things can get pretty heavy around here, but this is a nice light break from all that. And when you had first reached out to me, even though I'd never done a D.B. Cooper episode, I wasn't sure we could fill the full two hours and keep it interesting because the story 
of the events can be summed up rather quickly. But then I checked out your podcast, The Cooper Vortex, and realized that you've done over 30 hours on it. So surely we can make a compelling two. But I do love the way you do the show. It's not far off from what I try to do. Bring people on to make their best case and leave it at that. Of course, on your show, it's people who think they know what happened or who D.B. Cooper was. And I got sucked in. You'll have a guest who's convinced D.B. Cooper was their uncle or someone who lived next door to a guy in the woods that they think was him. Others think he was also the Zodiac killer and some say it was an inside job. There's a long list of suspects. And now I just want to know, you know, you got me sucked into it. But let me ask the question that you often ask first. How did you get interested in the case? How'd you get sucked into the Cooper vortex, as it were? I was living in Woodland, Washington at the time, which is just right outside the drop zone. And so it was just a local story, something I was interested in. A bunch of people followed it locally. He was kind of a folk hero. And then my wife got me this book, Skyjack, as a gift by Jeffrey Gray. And I had it on my shelf for a while. I eventually read it. And in that book, towards the end of it, uh, one of the guys he's talking to said he stopped talking to me because he's going to write his own book. So I looked on Amazon and that book was already out by then. So I grabbed that one into the blast with Robert Blevins and I just fell into the rabbit hole of D.B. Cooper at that point. I was so fascinated by the fact that there is no real evidence for D.B. Cooper, for Dan Cooper, aside from what happened on that plane. But there are a ton of different suspects who seem pretty plausible and a huge community of people trying to solve this case on their own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've really gone down this rabbit hole for sure. You've read 12 or 13 books on it at this point, interviewed so many people. It's impressive. And so I'm sure this story is familiar to some people. And I really just tried to give the bare bones bullet points there in the intro because it's best to have you walk us through it. Give us that traditional play-by-play -play of events so that we're all on the same page and then we can dig into some of those details. Absolutely. So Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, a guy in a black raincoat or trench coat and a business suit carrying an attache case or briefcase buys a ticket at the Portland International Airport one way to Seattle, it's $20. He gives his name as Dan Cooper on the ticket. The plane, he asks specifically if the plane is a 727. They confirm that. He's one of the last to board the plane, sits in the back of the plane. Shortly after takeoff, around 3 o'clock, 2.45 p.m., he hands stewardess Florence Schaffner a note. She assumes it's just another businessman hitting on her. She's a good-looking gal. So she puts the note in her pocket, doesn't look at it, and walks away. He sees her do this, comes back, and he's like, Ma'am, you might want to take a look at that note. I have a bomb. So she takes the note up to the pilots. He wants $200,000 and four parachutes before they land in Seattle. So the plane lands in Seattle. He gets his money in the parachutes. They bring it back on the plane. Plane takes off at uh, approximately 7 o'clock, 7.45. And then he asks for the 
very specific flight instructions when they take off. He wants the plane to fly at its minimum stall speed, which is just over 100 knots, about 120 miles an hour. He wants the landing gear down. He wants the flap set to 15 degrees and the plane to stay at approximately 10,000 feet with the cabin depressurized. Hmm. And then he asks for the plane to take off with the rear air stairs down. The plane he hijacked, that 727, was one of just, I believe, two at the time that had a rear air stairs or an aft stairs that would lower. So if this plane flew into a small airport that didn't want to have one of those stair trucks, the passengers could board and deplane using those air stairs. The pilots weren't even sure if the plane could take off with the stairs down. They said it was unsafe. He argued with them that it was perfectly safe, but he's not going to get into it. He'll just lower the stairs in flight. And then the pilots contact air traffic control because they're not even sure if the plane can fly with the stairs down. Is it going to cause the plane to crash? They're not sure. Air traffic control isn't sure either. So they reached out to Boeing. Can this plane fly with the rear air stairs down? And Boeing says, yes, we've actually done some testing and done some other things with that. It, it isn't a problem. The plane can fly like that. So he knew more about this plane than the pilots flying it. Amazing. So he has his parachutes and money. The plane takes off. And he asks the stewardess to go back up into the cockpit. And then sometime in between Seattle and Reno, he jumps out of the plane, never to be seen again. <laughs> yes, it is a really impressive and fun story. And one of the details I think we might have left out there is when the plane stopped in Seattle, that's when all the other passengers got off, right? I mean, they didn't even know they were being hijacked. That's correct. None of them knew they were being hijacked until they got off the plane. Hmm. And then, of course, the FBI is waiting there. And they want to know, you know, who's standing there and who's not, because that means that person is the one that's hijacking it. <laughs> and they have the name of Dan Cooper. It goes out on the AP wire immediately. And there's some mix up. There is a, a low level criminal. I think he was convicted of armed robbery by the name of D.B. Cooper in Portland. And because of that mix up, it just went out to the press as D.B. Cooper instead of Dan Cooper. And I believe the FBI never corrected that as part of their investigation. So if somebody said, oh, it was me, I gave my name as D.B. Cooper, they would know that that wasn't true. Right, right. Hmm. Yes, and he was so meticulous with the details and the planning. One detail I'd heard is that he had the staff close all the windows to avoid snipers on the plane, you know, during the part where they were landed. And he was also apparently quite nice and quite accommodating to the staff. I heard that he had requested even ha to have meals for the flight staff when they landed in Seattle. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah, he asked for, for meals for the crew. Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaffner both said that he was polite and cordial and that he never appeared nervous is something that I've always been really fascinated by. You know, they gave his age as approximately mid to late 40s, which a man that age, it would be unusual for him to commit such a bold, daring crime, you know, jumping out of an airplane. And generally men that age aren't doing 
wild, insane crimes like that. You know, it'd be something you'd expect from someone that was 22, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not someone who was 47. <laughs> Indeed. And some of the most interesting details to me, kind of what we're talking about, are his behavior on the plane and his actions. They say, as as you mentioned, he was calm and pretty nice. Of course, he did drink a little drink and smoke a little smoke on there. What more can you tell us about those limited interactions and behaviors that help us to get a sense of the guy? Well, the only thing that's really known about him is, you know, what Tina Mucklow said, because she sits next to him on the plane for about five hours. I mean, she sat there, she lit his cigarettes, which I just love that part of the story. And after he hands the note off to the first stewardess, for whatever reason, a different stewardess kind of continues the interaction with him. But after that first note, he puts sunglasses on, which I just love that. And (laughs) if you look at those iconic sketches of D.B. Cooper, he has sunglasses on in him, which is just great. So he's sitting there in a business suit, hijacking the plane wearing sunglasses. Having a stewardess light his cigarettes and drinking bourbon. Yeah. (laughs) And that was another detail in terms of his character and his thoughtfulness of the staff is apparently he paid for the bourbon and tried to give the change to that stewardess, even though he's also hijacking the plane for $200,000. Yeah, he tried to tip him for the drinks, which they refused and said they couldn't accept gratuity. And then when he got the money on the plane, he's going through it. And the stewardess said that he appeared excited. You know, it's $200,000 in 20s in a bag that she brings on the plane to him. And she remarks, that, wow, that's a lot of money. He grabs a few bundles and hands it to her. Hmm. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, I can't accept gratuity again, making, you know, the joke about with his drinks and whatnot. But That part is so fascinating. I mean, he's risking his life to do this, but seems to not care that much about the money. Yeah, that is an interesting detail. That was going to be one of the questions I was going to get to later, but let's just ask it now. Do you think he had other motivations? Obviously, money is a huge motivation, but was there something else there? I think there was. I mean, it depends on what narrative, what what book you read, whose theory you're you're into, I mean, some people say the money, it wasn't about the money at all. Other people say, you know, obviously it was, he's hijacking a plane for that money. But he does seem to have kind of a cavalier attitude about it. I mean, maybe he didn't need all of it. $200,000 doesn't sound like that much today, but it's approximately a million and a quarter adjusted for inflation. So it's a lot of money. Right. I mean, if I robbed a bank or hijacked a plane for a million dollars, I don't know that I would be giving it away at the time. <laughs> I I don't see myself doing that. Yes, I agree. And tell me if this is true, but I heard at one point a flight attendant had asked why their airline? And he said, I don't have a grudge against your airline. I just have a grudge. Exactly. I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. Hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. And obviously the details are sparse, but is there any other dialogue that we know about? Not really. I mean, we only have what what Tina Mucklow says she talked to him about. Mm-hmm. It was few and far between. He asked to have his notes back that he was relaying back and forth with the cockpit. And the only real evidence left on the plane when he jumped out was a black clip-on tie. 
Right. That's a little strange. He left his black clip-on tie, but requested his notes back, and then they had the cigarette butts, and they also had the whiskey glass, but that was mixed in with other glasses because this is 1971, and they're not big on collecting DNA type of evidence. Right. Hmm. Yeah, and the cigarette butts, there's a lot of uh, discussion about that. A lot of people have said over the years that they were lost in the evidence handoff between Reno and Portland and Seattle and the local police, FBI. But I've actually seen an FBI document, since the FBI is releasing a lot of this now, where the instruction was to examine the cigarette butts for evidence and then throw them away, Hmm. which, you know, obviously today... They're insanely valuable because there'd be great DNA on them. But in 1971, there wasn't that thought. So unfortunately, they probably were thrown away. Right, right. And I watched the History Channel piece on this, and the FBI agent that they interviewed said that he used filthy language, but I had not heard that anywhere else. Had you? Does that jive with what you've heard? That's something that Ralph Himmelsbach has said, you know, he said that he's a sleazy, scummy criminal, that he used foul language, like you said, but there really isn't any evidence of that. And I'm not sure why he's he's said that. A couple people have theories as to why Ralph has has gone on like that, but he is an FBI agent talking about a man who committed a crime. Right. Yeah, he's uh, already predisposed to villainize this person yeah and it is interesting that in this that no one was hurt right the only person who was possibly hurt in this was dan cooper himself (laughs) and that is what makes me side more with the stewardess's accounts and not this fbi agent because if he really was some sleazy loudmouth criminal it would be hard for everyone on the plane to not know they were hijacked clearly there was some smoothness to his operation to keep the stewardess calm to keep people from being in the know clearly the facts that i know about the case seem to suggest that he was a pretty smooth guy absolutely i mean i really believe that this was was planned so thoroughly and so well and orchestrated essentially perfectly like you were saying no one on the plane knew they were being hijacked Everyone was calm. And then immediately after, the stewardesses were calm and said that, you know, he was polite. He didn't appear nervous. (laughs) Now, when it came to the things that he had, he did have this apparent bomb in a briefcase. And we can talk about if maybe that was real or not. But he also had a brown paper bag. Is that correct? That is correct brown paper bag i've heard it called a canvas sack i've heard people say it was green but he did have some other bag with him Hmm. and of course nobody knows what's in that you can only speculate you know maybe it was gloves and goggles or jump boots because if you're jumping out of a plane everyone said he was wearing loafers which wouldn't be ideal footwear you know jumping out of a plane at ten thousand feet at 120 miles an hour into the woods Yes. I've heard you bring that up on other podcasts that if you had to bet, it was probably some kind of items for the jump, the gloves and the goggles, because experts say it's very difficult to do without that. And 
let's get into that question. The big one of survivability. To jump out of the back of an aircraft mid-flight, in the rain, in the dark, with none of this stuff, is not easy. Obviously, it's a lot more fun to think that the guy lived. And I know you've interviewed people on both sides of this question, but what are your thoughts? What are the arguments for and against? I believe that he survived the jump based on what I've read and everything. And also, it's much more fun to believe that he survived the jump. Mm -hmm. Marty Andrade has got a book, Finding D.B. Cooper, where he does a fantastic job, essentially, in my opinion, proving that the jump was survivable. He goes through a bunch of World War II ejections when planes are being shot down and the survivability of those dudes. And they're jumping out. You know, their plane was shot down. They're jumping out in as bad or worse conditions under immense pressure. And they had very most of them very little parachute training, maybe one practice jump. And some of them maybe only classroom training on jumping out of a plane. And in his book, it's over a 90% survivability of those dudes. And D.B. Cooper was jumping out under better conditions than, than most of those jumps. He knew he was going to be jumping. He's standing on the rear air stairs. The plane wasn't shot down or anything like that. But the FBI has said they believe he died in the jump. You know, Probably because they couldn't figure out who did it. So it's just easier <laughs> for them to say that. Yes. Yes. And he seems to have known quite a bit about the conditions in which to jump. And apparently even the parachute came with instructions and he said that he would not need those. But I have heard that the particular parachute that he requested or that he was given, I'm not sure if he requested this model, but it was apparently hard to use. Or maybe it would be a clue to his previous experience. Can you tell us about the parachute? Yeah, I think that's important. So he asks for four parachutes, two front chutes and two back chutes, which seems like industry jargon to me, you know, mm -hmm. or like he was trained in that terminology. And he's given a military parachute and a civilian parachute. And the civilian parachute is a more sport one, more modern. It's steerable. And the military chute is not. And he chooses to use the military chute. And some people will say, well, that's proof that he didn't know what he was doing because he should have chosen that sport chute. It was a better design, more modern, and like I said, steerable. But I've also heard that it was that was the correct choice because that sport chute could not have handled opening at that speed and could have been shredded to pieces. Mm. And the shoot, the military shoot he chose, I've heard it called the, the pit bull of parachutes. It's just absolutely tough and could have done this no problem. And Tina, as she's going to the cockpit, looks back to see him putting on that military parachute and says that it looks like he had done it many times before. And I've seen a couple versions of that same parachute and it would be difficult if you did not know how to put it on. It wouldn't be something that without any training or experience, you just very comfortably put on and are good to go. Right. Not very intuitive. And 
let's talk about the bomb because this is a big aspect of it and it also kind of speaks to his character and if he was willing to hurt people or not. But what do a lot of your guests seem to think when it comes to it being real or not? I'm thinking not. I'm thinking not as well. And I believe everyone I've interviewed has said that the bomb wasn't real except for the foremans who say that it was Barb Dayton who pulled it off. She told them that the bomb was real because, quote, I don't do anything half-assed. <laughs> right. That's one of several people who's tried to claim that this was them. And that's really exciting. And I've heard you on a previous podcast say that I think that's the particular theory that you like most or where you would place your bet. Is that right? I wouldn't be where I place my bet, but it is a theory that I definitely like. I mean, <laughs> D.B. Cooper is transgender. How is that not great? Right. I pulled this off of Wikipedia because I knew Barbara Dayton would come up, but it says Dayton underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969 and adopted the name Barbara, claiming to have staged the Cooper hijacking two years earlier, disguised as a man to, quote, get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose insurmountable rules and conditions had prevented her from becoming an airline pilot. Dayton said that the ransom money was hidden in a cistern near Woodburn, a suburb area of Portland, but eventually recanted the entire story after learning that hijacking charges could still be brought, and the FBI apparently has never commented publicly on her, and she died in 2002. Is there anything more to tell people about Barbara Dayton and why she's such a character? Barbara Dayton is definitely a character. One of the favorite things the foreman's told me about that is they never were able to solve the D.B. Cooper case because they were looking for a man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is compelling. It's an interesting one for sure. And there's definitely others that I think are are fascinating too. But I guess just to stick with the story itself a little bit more, let me ask you about four parachutes. Some people have suggested, and I think it would be quite smart to ask for four instead of just one because they could sabotage that one. Or I guess that's all they could do to it because there weren't really tracking devices at the time, perhaps. But is that your working theory on why he would suggest four? A hundred percent. If he asks for just one parachute, the FBI can sabotage that chute. And asking for multiple, they won't, because if he takes a hostage with him, now the FBI just murdered someone. Mm -hmm. So asking for multiple parachutes is, is really the way to go. Mm -hmm. And in your episode about it possibly being an inside job, your guest Robert Blevins brought up a compelling idea about the bomb that maybe the sticks were rolls of quarters in red tape, because based on the ambiguity of where you might land, you might need to get to a payphone and call your pickup guy if there was one. I mean, this is 1971. Yeah, that is interesting. Although I'd, I'm not sure why you would do rolls of quarters because they'd be really heavy. That's fair. I mean, I don't know if they'd be too heavy to handle. It's got to be something. But I mean, he jumped with that bomb. So if I was planning this, I wouldn't want it to be that heavy. I've also heard people say they were flares and could be used, you know, he could throw them out the plane to kind of gauge which way the wind's blowing, I guess. But, I mean, really, we don't know. He took it with him. Yes, and we can't, that's probably an indication 
Well, I guess it doesn't really indicate if it's real or not, but if it was definitely fake, I would want to keep that to myself. But I also think if he's going to plan this so meticulously, do you really want a real bomb being in the mix of all this? It's dangerous enough. I agree. I don't see a need for it to be a real bomb. The pilots actually asked Florence Schaffner because he cracks the briefcase open and shows it to her. And she said there were six or eight red sticks and a bunch of wires. The pilots asked her if they thought, in her opinion, if it was a real bomb. And she says, I think so, to them. And then they immediately say, well, I guess it doesn't really matter if it's real or not. Because once you say I have a bomb, that's all you really need to do. You can't say prove it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. And when it comes to the actual point of departure from the plane, talk to us about that a little bit. Because this, of course, is going to speak to the search radius below where the FBI is looking for him. But no one really sees him jump, right? No one sees him jump. Shortly after taking off from Seattle, they're flying to refuel in Reno. His original demand was to fly to Mexico. But the pilot said, you know, under the conditions he asked for, the plane won't have enough fuel to make it all the way to Mexico. They briefly discuss where to stop for refueling, and it's agreed upon we'll stop in Reno. Shortly after they take off, he instructs the stewardess to go into the cockpit. She briefly showed him how to lower the rear air stairs. And then when she goes to the cockpit, she sees him putting on the parachute. And that's the last anyone ever saw of him. When they are in the cockpit, they radio back to him if he's still there at one point. He says yes. And then around 8.11 to 8.13, depending on which report, which transcript you're reading, the pilots noticed a pressure bump in the cabin. And it actually caused the pilot to need to correct the flight of the plane. And so they made a note of that as a possibility that that's where he jumped, basing it maybe the rear air stairs bounced back up after he jumped out. And so they actually made a test of this. They flew the plane out over the ocean sometime later with a 200-pound weight on the back of the rear air stairs with them down and pushed it off to see if they could replicate that pressure bump, and it did. So they believe that that pressure bump was where he jumped out of the plane, which was somewhere around Ariel, Washington, Yakult, Amboy area. So when you hear people talk about the drop zone, that's what they're talking about. Hmm. And it seems like he would have known everything that he did know about the plane. seems like he would have also known that it wouldn't make it all the way to Mexico City or even across the border. And... All indications are that he really had no intention of even getting there. That was just, uh, you need to go that direction so I can jump out over here. Right. I believe he wanted them to fly along a specific path, and that's why he mentioned Mexico and then chose Reno. He wanted them to fly a specific path, not necessarily to a specific place. I mean, he obviously planned on jumping out of the airplane, so the end destination, I don't really think matters. Mm-hmm. He just has to be over that line. Yes. And it's Victor 23 is the flight path that plane was on. Hmm. Interesting. And <laughs> what can be said about the search itself? How long did it go on? How much area did they cover? 
What can be said about that? And then nothing was found, not even his parachute, nothing else on the ground? No, nothing on the ground was found. You know, the fact that he chose to do this the day before Thanksgiving, I think, is really important. Yeah. Because it gives him a very long weekend to get back to his life if he had a job. And also, on holiday weekends, you tend to have the longtime employees or, or your better employees would be on vacation. So you kind of have the B team running things during a holiday. Yes. So I think his choice to do it at that time is important and goes to show how well planned this whole thing was. And he actually had, I want to say it was over 48 hours before there were boots on the ground searching the area that they believe he jumped in. And then in that area, the weather turns, you get a bunch of snow out there. And so it makes searching it even more difficult. And so they didn't do a real thorough search of the area until spring when they had like 200 dudes from the National Guard just start stomping through the woods looking for what they thought would be a dead body. And they actually found a body of a teenage girl, I believe, from an unrelated case. Mm-hmm. But they never found anything else. Man. And I guess there was a, a bundle of money found or a couple bundles of money, but that was way later. Can you break that down for us? It's a bit of a mystery in itself, isn't it? Absolutely. So the only evidence of this hijacking that's found afterward is in 1980, an 8-year-old boy is camping on a riverbank with his parents and pushes some sand aside to make a fire pit and uncovers three bundles of cash about 5800 bucks and they take it home and try to clean it up the money's deteriorated it had rubber bands on it when they found it but they quickly crumbled and they figured out you know it's probably the db cooper money they get a hold of the fbi the fbi takes it it is db cooper money they basically dig up that whole beachside area tina bar on the columbia and didn't find anything else but How the money got there, the condition it was in, that has only added more questions. Nobody has a good explanation for how that money got there. (laughs) It is interesting because the first thought is like, well, he dropped some and it floated down and landed on the shore. What's so difficult about that? But it doesn't seem like that would even be possible, right? Right, yeah. I interviewed this guy, Tom Kay. And he did a bunch of different experiments trying to figure out how the money got there, trying to figure out how long rubber bands last outdoors. He even went so far as to figure out the company that was producing the rubber bands for banks on the West Coast at that time and basically got the recipe from them on what was the chemical makeup of the rubber bands at that time. And duplicated them and ran a bunch of experiments to see how they would deteriorate outdoors. He also put a bunch of bundles of ones with his business card in them and threw them in a bunch of different watersheds to see if they would float different directions. And actually got a call from someone who found one of those bundles. And it it didn't make it very far. I want to say it, it made it about a mile from where he put that money in the first place. And Tina Barr 
is about 10 or 15 miles west of where the plane was, even if you assume it was the farthest west in that Victor 23 flight path. So there isn't a good explanation for how it got there. It's not like he dropped it in the air and it would land there. There isn't an explanation for it being dropped in the water. I've heard people say that, you know, maybe he jumped in the Columbia and the money sank to the bottom and then a dredge scooped it up and dumped it on there. I mean, there just is not a good explanation for how that money got there other than a plant really huh. about, you know, probably 90 days before it was found there. Right. That's so nuts because I guess nine years, it's just completely impossible that that money could actually be preserved outside in its location for nine full years. Right. Huh. Yeah. It is crazy. It's quite a mystery. And I mean, he really is a legend. He has this real kind of anti-hero status. I mean, he brought a supposed bomb on a plane and hijacked it. Technically, you would think, you know, he put a lot of people in danger. Why this anti-hero status? Do you think it's just because he got away? Is it just kind of this stick it to the man sort of thing? What are your thoughts on just the aura of D.B. Cooper and how he's perceived? I think it's all of that. And kind of in the Portland and Seattle area, I mean, they kind of have um, a very liberal, stick it to the man kind of an attitude. And no one was hurt doing this. I think if he would have, you know, pushed a stewardess out of the plane and she died, people would be talking about this in a very different way. But no one was hurt. So you can kind of root for him. The money was insured. So it, it isn't even like he robbed the airline of everything and they went out of business because of this. Mm-hmm. You know, he got $200,000 from the airline that was insured. I want to say they recuperated 80% of that from the insurance company. Mm. So people root for him. And he's cool. He's drinking and smoking in a suit, wearing sunglasses, and then jumps out of the plane like that. <laughs> Right. And I guess just out of my own curiosity, do we know what brand of bourbon he was drinking? We don't, but we know he was smoking Raleigh cigarettes. Ah, right on. Man, if I had a bourbon company, I'd definitely be making ads that it was me. It was my stuff. You know, only only the best for D.B. Cooper. <laughs> I don't know about the best. It was probably just well bourbon on the airline. Right, right, right. Well, in terms of the money, did he demand that the airline meet the ransom? I mean, obviously, when someone hijacks something and asks for $200,000, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people involved. Some might think the money came from the government. Was it because it was just their airplane? It just seems weird. Where did all that money come from? Or was it specifically requested from him to be a hit to the airline? Well, that's interesting because there was... A lot of hijacking going on at the time, mostly for political reasons, you know, like fly me to Cuba. But this was the first one where he demanded a ransom. But the airline in Seattle had $250,000 set aside for such an emergency, which is seemed odd to me that they did that. You know, did he know about that? And is that why he asked for 200000 Because he knew they already had that money on hand? 
Huh. Well, that speaks to the inside job hypothesis. I don't know how many different suspects can be folded under that umbrella, but that detail does suggest a little maneuvering from behind the curtain. Yeah, and then, you know, the fact that he knew that the rear air stairs of the plane could be lowered, the CIA was doing tests in Vietnam, dropping cargo and potentially soldiers out of the back of 727s because it looked like a commercial plane. Mm-hmm. So they could fly that and drop soldiers and gear out of the back of it. Was he involved in that? Was he doing something with that? Right. I have heard that suggestion that he was CIA and that the FBI didn't really investigate as well as they could have, or they turned a blind eye, or they realized that it was bumping up against the other agency and just backed off. There are those claims out there. Do you think there's any merit to those? It's definitely plausible. I mean, I just had this guy on, Nat LaFoke, who believes it was E. Howard Hunt (laughs) that pulled it off. And he does look very similar to the first sketch. And there's that where he's testifying in the Watergate hearings. He's wearing sunglasses. Hmm. If you just Google E. Howard Hunt, one of the first images that comes up is him in sunglasses testifying on that. And that's very interesting. I mean, he could have done that to change airline security at the time. I mean, that that guy has a bunch of reasons why he thinks it's E. Howard Hunt, but... He definitely had some knowledge. He knew more about the plane than the pilots did. Right, right. And there wasn't exactly Google at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is so true. When you put it back in the context of 1971, there's very limited ways you could have the information about the plane, the information about the parachute, also knowing, or maybe that's coincidence, that he asked for the right amount of money, but... You got to add that to the pile, his calmness, because you'd have to have all this up in your head still. I mean, this speaks to a long time of planning. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you if the FBI has done anything that you'd consider sketchy in this overall investigation. You know, like I mentioned, some researchers think they turned a blind eye or could have done more. Have they always been forthright, in your opinion, as you've looked at this material? It's interesting. I mean, there isn't much known about him, but the FBI says they investigated thousands of people involved in this. And, you know, the sport parachuting community in 1971 wasn't very big. There wasn't a ton of people doing that. So they were just going to all these different sport parachuting clubs and investigating those guys, asking if they thought it could be anyone they knew. They got hundreds, maybe thousands of leads. Because the sketch is generic looking. And it could be, oh, you know, that kind of looks like my uncle and my uncle was parachuting in the military in World War II. So they just didn't have that much to go on. But one of my favorite things the FBI did was around 2007, I believe, there was a online forum called the Drop Zone, which was a skydiving forum. And they started a thread about D.B. Cooper. And that really was the place to go for the D.B. Cooper investigation, you know, as a fan or as an amateur investigator. An FBI agent by the name of Larry Carr went on there 
under the name secret, like the letter C-K-R-E-T, and started posting on there and asking people things and then started providing information that obviously only the FBI would have. And I just think that's wild. I mean, that's a crazy approach to an investigation and maybe something that you can only do, you know, after 35 years with no real evidence or no leads. I mean, I, I can't think of another example where the FBI has done that. Hmm. Yeah. And I had read that there are files that have been released recently. You kind of mentioned that in the beginning. I don't know what would be released, but why are they releasing files and have they added any real context? They're releasing files because of a couple of lawsuits from Tom Colbert, I believe, Freedom of Information Act. And so they've just been dumping these batches of files. And you can go through them about their investigation, some notes. But I don't know if you've ever gone through stuff like that, but it's incredibly boring. So much is redacted. Sometimes you don't know what you're reading or if it's important. You can read conflicting reports because they're interviewing different people, but you don't know who they're interviewing because that's redacted. So there are a couple people that are really going through them. One in particular, the guy goes by his screen name Flyjack, has been going through them and, and doing a great job kind of sourcing out what is valuable and what's not. But... I mean, each time it's like 10,000 pages. Man. And let me ask you, having read so many books, do you have a particular favorite book on the subject? Definitely. Bruce Smith's D.B. Cooper and the FBI is a great, great book. It talks about multiple suspects, about the investigation, about things that he thinks the FBI did poorly in the investigation it's a great book marty andrade's book finding db cooper that is also a great book it talks about like i mentioned earlier about the jump being survivable nat lafoke's book i actually like about e howard hunt being db cooper that's the most recent one so that one talks about some of the fbi files and has them in his book and just the fact that it's more recent makes it good I mean, Max Gunther's book <laughs> about D.B. Cooper is also good, although a lot of people believe it's fiction. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, you're a, a D.B. Cooper sponge, man. You've soaked it all up. And in terms of technical analysis of things that are possible now that weren't back then, has using modern technology yielded any information? I know there's not a lot of stuff to analyze, but I believe... Tom K. did some work on the tie, right? Yeah, and that's interesting. That agent Larry Carr who got on the forum, he actually opened it up to Tom K. And Tom K. is not involved with the FBI. He's a, a paleontologist and owns a bunch of other businesses. But he actually got access to the FBI files and their evidence. And the only real evidence they had that he could examine real closely was the tie that was left on the plane. So he got it under an electron microscope and found a bunch of rare earth minerals on the tie. He found pure titanium on there and then a bunch of 
other substances from like cathode ray tubes, things that your average dude wouldn't have on his tie, hmm. which is another thing that just kind of adds more mystery to this. Right. Is there any possible explanation for that? Does it give us a clue to anything? Is there a certain kind of person who would wear a tie and be working with that kind of stuff? It does. I mean, there were only a handful of places in 1971 that were working with pure titanium. Would have been chemical companies were doing it at the time. Some people have said, you know, Boeing's supersonic transport, although others said it would have been a titanium alloy that was used. There's a company, Tektronics, in Portland that was using some of that and making cathode ray tubes. So, it does narrow it down if you believe that the evidence on the tie is critical to who D.B. Cooper was. You know, and some suspect peddlers say that that's important and some say that it's not. Yeah, it is hard to say with so much time passing. You know, is that analysis accurate? Was this tie just tossed on some other evidence in the old days of not really paying that much attention to this stuff? It is hard to say. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we're coming up on 50 years that this happened, and there are still tons of people who are trying to solve this 50 years later. You know, and many of the principal people now are dead. Yes. And I have to ask about the more conspiratorial conclusions people have come to, some wilder than others, but I've heard it suggested that he was an MK Ultra style victim. That's pretty wild. What sort of theories have you heard in that regard? What are some of the most epic claims? Well, I think one of the most epic claims is it was E. Howard Hunt that pulled it off. Fair. I mean, he was working for the CIA on and off. He was kind of in trouble with the law on and off, got in trouble with Watergate. He was working for Nixon. Nat's theory is that he did it outside of government instruction, but knew that the government would have his back because he ultimately accomplished their goal in changing airline security by doing that. Mm, mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, to be so calm, there almost is this air of, well, even if I get caught, I mean, <laughs> come on. It's got that kind of tone to his attitude. I agree. And, you know, Bruce Smith that I've talked to a lot about this, he believes, you know, it was special forces and whether it was a guy in special forces doing it because he was instructed to or because he had this skill set and wanted to use it for his own financial gain. Of course, he's not sure. But I think there's a lot of validity in that. I mean, you're talking about an insane amount of planning to be able to do this inside information, and then the ability to execute that plan. Not every 45-year-old guy can do, can do that. And the fact that he remains calm says to me that he's a guy who has done dangerous things before. This isn't his first rodeo. <laughs> Absolutely. And in terms of the securities and the protocols that did change, what can be said about that? Well, when was the last time you went to the airport? I mean, now it's crazy. Oh, yeah. In 1971, he's able to get onto the plane without showing ID with a briefcase bomb. And 
It's no problem. Yeah. All he had to do was say his name, Dan Cooper, and then the agent writes that on the ticket, and then he walks onto an airplane. A few years later, they have metal detectors, started looking in bags, and they actually added two 727s after this, a device called the Cooper Vane, named after Dan Cooper, that prevents the rear air stairs from being opened in flight. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, obviously airports are completely different. Now it feels like we're being processed for prison sometimes. And it is a curious thing. Obviously, you might not share the extreme views that I sometimes have, but there are a lot of examples where a case can be made that something that changed protocols to make things more like checkpoints or more militarized or reduce people's freedoms and rights. A lot of times those catalysts have something sketchy about them or possibly could. Definitely. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that the CIA or another agency pulled this off. I'm with you. I mean, there's a lot going on there. And the fact that this was never solved, I think, kind of adds to that conspiratorial angle on this. (laughs) See, people, it's a better fit for us than you realized. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of interesting, similar to Roswell, New Mexico, there is a subculture in Ariel, Washington of celebrating these events even today, isn't there? Unfortunately, that stopped two or three years ago now. So there was D.B. Cooper Days that was held in Ariel, Washington at the Ariel store. And it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you get off the main highway and then drive for 45 minutes into the woods to get to, I don't even want to say the town of Ariel. The, I mean, the Ariel store is the town. There's just that one building there. Hmm. And There would be a wild party there every year, the Friday after Thanksgiving, where there would be, you know, three or four hundred people at this bar, cars parked on the street for two miles. And it was a great time. And the whole building is basically dedicated to D.B. Cooper. But unfortunately, when the owner, Donna Elliott, passed away, the county took away the business licenses from them. Because they're, that building isn't up to any sort of health or safety codes at all. So they said, you know, if you want to run this as a business, you have to meet current health and safety standards now. And so her son who took it over, I mean, that would just be an absolute daunting task. I mean, the building's pretty much falling down. And the kitchen that bar ran was just like the kitchen in your home. It was not a commercial kitchen at all. Uh, man, well. Yeah, so Eric Ulis has actually started D.B. CooperCon to replace that D.B. Cooper Days celebration that was in Ariel. Yes, and that was obviously my closing question was to get into that because it is coming up fast. I guess tell the people what to expect now that they're all jazzed up. Why go to CooperCon? Because it's going to be a solid two days of D.B. Cooper. <laughs> you have the convention at the Higgins Theater. And it's going to be eight hours. I'm the opening speaker. Marty Andrade will be there also. 
Many of the names I've had on the show, Eric Eulis, Bill Rollins will be there, Bruce Smith. All of the names in the D.B. Cooper community will be there. So if you're interested in this, you're in the Portland area, head on out. Come see us. Yes, I think even the daughter of the the pilot or somebody who is involved in this somehow is, is coming, if that's not a mistake on my part. Yes, she is going to be coming out and speaking about her father's experience in this. Her father was the pilot? Co-captain. Co-captain. Right on. Have you ever heard her talk about her conversations with her own father? I guess she was a, a teenager when this happened. Has she spoken out before about memories from her father or details that he's told her? I've actually never heard her speak before. Mm. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Right on. And I've heard there's other interesting things going on, like an escape room and I guess some kind of road tour, you know, like when you go down to Texas by the book depository, everybody wants to get up in that window where Oswald was and everyone wants to walk the path of the motorcade. And there's something similar happening here, right? Absolutely. So it's three day event. There's going to be a, a meet and greet at a brew pub on Friday, the 22nd, and then Saturday, all day, you have the conference. And then on Sunday, there's a couple other D.B. Cooper events. There's going to be a boat tour to Tina Bar, the D.B. Cooper escape room, and then like you mentioned, a, a road tour with Bruce Smith that kind of follows along the flight path and takes you into that drop zone area. So you can see where D.B. Cooper would have jumped out of the plane and see the aerial store. It's... So it's exciting if you're into D.B. Cooper. Even <laughs> yes. if you're not, it's cool. And and Bruce Smith is an amazing person, an amazing person to talk to. So definitely worth it. Cool, cool. Well, if I was up in the Pacific Northwest, I would definitely show up. But I hope this draws a little more attention to the con and it is a success. I hope so. I hope it's not just me speaking to the people I'm already talking to about D.B. Cooper. <laughs> No, I'm sure there's going to be some new faces, but very cool. And as for the podcast, it's definitely well done. Anything else to add there? How long do you plan on doing it? Is the list of suspects and researchers more vast than I might think? Definitely. When I had started this project, I told myself at the end of this year, I was going to be all done in the D.B. Cooper game. But I was meeting up with Russell Colbert, who edits my show, puts it all together for me. And there's just a lot more to cover and a lot more to do. So we're going to continue to do the show into next year. Damn. And, you know, like you mentioned, we already have 30 hours of content on DB Cooper out already and many more suspects and, and many other stories to cover. So we're going to continue to do the show. Right on. Are there maybe any other stories or mysteries that you plan on turning your attention to next? Not that I can think of right now. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Somebody told me, oh, do you love true crime? I'm like, no, not really. I don't <laughs> listen to any other true crime podcasts or anything like that. It's just this story that I was interested in and, you know, fell down a very deep rabbit hole. <laughs> all Cooper all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, well, I just think it's a lot of fun. Like I said in the beginning, it can get really heavy around here. It's nice to just talk about something fairly light. I mean, it gets quite dark sometimes doing the preparation for these shows. So this was a little break even for me, and I definitely enjoyed it. So thanks again, man. 
have a great time at the con and keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Greg. I appreciate it. Check out my show, The Cooper Vortex, and come see me at DB CooperCon in Portland, uh, November 22nd through 24th. Cheers. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, people. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully you also feel fine. And I'm sure today's show was unexpected, which you know I like. And I also think it's a nice break from the heaviness out there, which I know some people will agree because I've gotten some messages with requests for a cryptid show or something in the paranormal realm or a movie breakdown episode. And this isn't that, but I think it's medicine for the same problem which could maybe be summed up as the intensity of our time. Of course, some will go the other way and say, why do something so mundane when the world is on fire like it is? But the global motion picture stage show is not taking its cues from THC. And the world has been on some kind of fire since I was knee-high to a duck. And yes, the higher side chats can be a major conduit to seeing some things behind the curtain. But does that make the fire less hot? Not really. But Darren brought it up and told me when the conference was, and I checked out some of his previous interviews and thought, hey, if THC is ever going to have a D.B. Cooper episode in the archive, this is the guy to have it with. And in his previous interviews, he basically says that he started doing his own deep dive D.B. Cooper podcast because he was so sick of hearing that same template applied to the smattering of podcasts that had their D.B. Cooper episode. And I vibed with that and figured, hey, we'll do that same thing. But when I know we're doing a one-off show, I definitely try to make sure it's as full and complete as it can be because we're probably not coming back to this. But it seems like a lot of people out there root for a guy like D.B. Cooper in an economic system with such a strong downcurrent, where the story feels like a time where an average Joe did get one over on the system with his one big break. And it seems like that is a lot of the magic in the D.B. Cooper saga. But then in the back of my mind, I go back to a guy like Court Lindahl or these guests we have that seem to point out that behind many of the household stories and mysteries out there are people promoting these stories for one reason or another. And then as you guys are at home clearly sitting there with your was this a manipulated event checklist, you've got to put a check mark in the box for did this event increase Orwellian security or infringe on the rights of the people with a new standard protocol. So from that perspective, the D.B. Cooper tale might not be much different from the damn shoe bomber story. You know, something happens once and then it changes the protocol forever. That's an element that I can't ignore. It's funny because I never heard the E. Howard Hunt suggestion, and it doesn't really have to be him personally but many agents and assets to the CIA would have these skills. And I guess we can't ever really know if the FBI or law enforcement tried their hardest, but they definitely didn't find their man. And it just smells of the type of everyman lore creation around something that was an op 
that you might expect. It's kind of like they think if you just give the people a compelling mystery or fairy tale, that's all they need and they're never going to be looking at us. Plus, the CIA always seems to be trying to increase their black budget funds. So there's another compelling item on the checklist. I mean, hey, the money never surfaced again, right? Hmm. Funny how that is. So the irony is that I try to do a nice, simple one-off show that tackles a fun little mystery and doesn't have to remind us that nothing is genuine and there's always some agents of the system pulling the strings. And here we are. Hey, comedy was supposed to be an integral part of the Higher Side Chat's DNA. And I guess the joke's on me. And again, we don't know, but the more I consider this possibility, the more I lean towards it. But if you heard the full episode, the second hour is where it does feel more complete because we took a good hard look at all the mainstream candidates and the most likely suspects according to the alternative researchers. And I do think it's just fun to hear about people who have had such crazy lives that those around them think, well, shit. Maybe this is D.B. Cooper. Maybe they pulled off that heist as well as all the other crazy shit they've done. So even if they didn't, you know they're interesting people. So that was fun. We also talked about the Zodiac Killer case, why people think this might be the same perpetrator. We also talked about the Alcatraz escapee theories and the idea that maybe some of the flight crew was in on it, all those fun possibilities. But we also talked about the culture of these sorts of investigations and mysteries, the researchers fighting amongst themselves, the fact that the more you learn about something, the more possibilities you entertain, the more confused you can sometimes get, or the more you realize that a strong case can be made for a lot of things, and only one can be true. Going back to a line from that old intro I used to use, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. Anyway, good stuff. I try hard to make these episodes as solid as I can for you, and the Higher Side Chats Plus is cheaper than Disney Plus, which is all shit you've seen before anyway. So sign up at thehiresidechats.com and all your wildest dreams will come true. Plus, we can stick it to Disney for taking that plus branding from me. <laughs> that said, I'm pretty proud of the overall complete D.B. Cooper episode that we'll have in our archives. There was an empty spot on the shelf just for this. I'm also happy to help out someone who has taken their subject matter so seriously and takes a similar approach to podcasting as I do. And I also like to sprinkle some extra promotional fairy dust on live events. They're really hard to organize. And they're really hard to turn a profit on. Seriously, I've thought about higher side con. And when you start to total up flights and hotels and actual payment for a bunch of speakers and a venue, the costs get pretty insane pretty fast. And most people don't commit to something until the last minute, so it can be pretty scary to have this front-end investment out there and not know if it's really going to be recouped. 
I mean, I've thought about this enough that sometimes after recording an episode, I've talked with some of our previous guests who do a lot of conferences about what it would take, and they've said five grand plus room and board, which is like eight or nine grand, and that's one guy. How many $40 tickets do I need to sell just to break even on one guy? I don't know exactly, but I know it's too many. So if you are in the Pacific Northwest, check out CooperCon. I'm sure you'll find a few new friends with similar interests. Plus, it's good to get off the internet and meet people face-to-face once in a while. You're not going to see me doing that, but you should do that. JK, JK. But big thanks again to Darren for sharing his knowledge and for perfecting his craft. And I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, mysterious skyjackers, black ops operators, and risky rebels laying dormant in the shell of the everyman. Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a SETI sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare Of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 